Thanks for downloading this episode of Historic Racing News. It's for personal use only and must not be broadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching for Historic Racing News wherever they get their podcasts. Welcome to the Historic Racing News Radio Show. Hello, my name is Paul Tarsi and today we're going back in time once again in the Historic Racing News time capsule, but this time to Italy, or to Monza to be more precise, and to look at one of motor racing's less successful ventures, the Race of Two Worlds, or Monzanapolis as it became known. I'm joined by Jim Roller, who is uh, who is going to supply the the other end of the story about uh, the, the Monza and Apolis. Well, you do the Monza to... and I'll do the Apolis. <laughs> yeah, that sounds good. That sounds good. Also in the show tonight, we'll, uh, we'll be joined by Paul Jurd, who will be looking at one of those ultra-brave drivers from the Edwardian era um, of 100 years ago, where people were driving things with aero engines and, and ridiculous things. And he'll be looking at the life and times of SF Edge, as he was always known. Selwyn Francis Edge is how he was born. And uh, Paul's going to be putting on his Sherlock Holmes hat and that, uh, doing a bit of sleuthing around this pioneer racer. Finally, today we'll be playing our latest round of opinionated silliness in our Corridors of Power game. This month, each of the teams will be looking for their favourite Grand Prix circuit from any era, and our regular team of Paul Jurd, Joe Bradley and Jim Roller will be joined by uh, the uh, the man who knows probably more about Formula One racing than the rest of us put together, and that's Nick Damon. I say, I don't think we need to pump Nick's ego up that much. Nineteen <laughs> fifty. <laughs> 19- oh. 1957, indeed. Before uh, I was born, Paul. Oh, stop it. It was an idea that the Italian end of the equation, the the auto club of uh, Milan, came up with to run an event at Monza for Indianapolis cars versus Formula One cars. And that that was the idea... And that Monza had been, um, like most circuits, I suppose, it had evolved over the years. But it was in the uh, in the early 50s that they actually built the proper banked circuit. There had been one there before, but it was it was built on earth banks, believe it or not, with a bit of, bit of concrete over the top, uh, which wasn't terribly satisfactory. So they built a proper one. And they were looking to how they were going to present that and to bring in some more people and some more revenue. So they contacted USAC, the United States Automobile Auto- Club. Automobile Club, that's right. Or we just uh, shortened it. It was United States Auto Club, but yes. Oh, fine. And uh, but they said to them, fine, would you like to come and, and have a race? They invited the uh, the guys over to the 55 Grand Prix. They were kind of impressed and that they liked it. Of course, first thing they had to look at was that they were going to run the race 
the wrong way around the banking because at Monza they go around clockwise and that at Indianapolis they go around anti-clockwise. So they had to, the first thing was to say, well, yes, we'll run it anti-clockwise. But it was, it was obviously an important step for Monza. It wasn't the first bank track by a long time, long way that you had Brooklyn's being the first ever one, but it's fair to say, I think, Jim, Avos. that Avos, yes, um, and Sitges in Spain is another yeah, one. Yeah, but yeah. but it was that the the banked track was very much part of the DNA of racing in the US. Oh, very much so. As was the the fact that it was an oval, uh, especially for for USAC, because at the time that was the the primary thing. And remember, um, a lot of people forget that. When the World Championship started in 1950, uh, Indianapolis for the first 10 years from 50 to 60 was a race that counted for points in the World Drivers Championship. And um, you had the odd person show up to race, but it it wasn't uh, it wasn't very often in the early 50s. uh, Ferrari showed up uh, in 1952. So there was some crossover. Uh, Alberto Ascari came over with a Ferrari 375, and he qualified 19th, and and a, a wheel broke, and he, he ended up he was ninth at the time, and and didn't finish the race. And then Bardall, the Bardall, um, the the oil additive yeah. company. Yeah. Well, the 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 Italian um, division of Bardall was very interested in some sort of. Uh, uh, exposure at Indianapolis. So they tried again uh, with a Ferrari engine with a hybrid car. The Curtis Craft uh, chassis was a very successful and popular chassis in the 50s in, in Indianapolis. And they took a, uh, a 121 LM sports car engine and put that into a, a Curtis Craft, the inline six. They put it into the, uh, the Curtis Craft. And um, in 1955, that project was shelved by Enzo himself because they had their hands full with Mercedes in the World Championship. Um, But in 1956, they uh, agreed to allow the project to go forward. And it was actually run by the Maserati brothers, but the car was was too slow to actually – qualify for the race it was only able to get to uh, 134 miles an hour and that wasn't fast enough to make the the fastest 33 so uh, and the bardall folks were also um helping and pushing the whole indian in uh, monzanapolis thing with the the auto club so that was part of part of the impetus um but if you if you go through the record books you'll see these odd names. If you go through the Formula One record books, you'll see Johnny Parsons, Troy Rutman, Billy Vukovic, yeah. Roger Ward, Jim Rathman. They all scored Formula One points, and you're like, "What? When? Yeah. Well, they won the Indianapolis 500 between 1950 and 1960, <laughs> and they all scored ten points or whatever. It That's was right. For, yeah, for yeah. Then. yeah, and yeah. and that was all. But obviously, the idea was to pit Formula One against USAC IndyCars. And mm-hmm. that that was that was great, but I think a number of things happened. That first of all, the guys at Monza were so keen to get the American cars over to Italy that really, effectively, they turned it into 
a USAC race. So obviously it had to be that they went anti-clockwise around the circuit because the cars were designed to do that and there's no way they could have gone the other way around. Fair enough. But you also then had those cars running 4.2-litre engines. Current Formula One at that point was two-and-a-half-litre engines and that the USAC cars were designed to to withstand and, and to to handle properly on a banked oval, whereas if you were running in, in that in that time, perhaps a Van Wall or a BRM around there, they weren't built strongly enough and the tyres weren't strong enough to be able to, to withstand it. So there was a bit of political shenanigans that went on and effectively the Formula One, the, the forerunner of the Formula One Constructors Association uh, decided that they were not going to participate. Um, they said it was too fast and too dangerous and that they expected problems with their tyres, which obviously would, were designed for road courses. And they they wheeled out the big guns, Fangio, Moss, Peter Collins, all spoke up in favour of a boycott. And that Fangio, in a, in a press interview, also said that there was no point in trying to race the two-and-a-half-litre car against the 4.2-litre car. So, uh, yeah, it it didn't start well. And the the entry for that first that first event in 1957, Jim, was, uh, was a bit one-sided, wasn't it? Very much so. You had um, – we only had, technically had two of what they would consider Formula One cars, uh, and that was a Maserati 250F for Jean Barra and uh, Mario Borja – in uh i'm sure i'm butchering that um in the uh, ferrari 340 america uh they had uh three jaguar d-type sports cars and then the rest were all curtis craft or watson uh indy cars with the addition of uh well it looks like there was a kuzma a phillips two kuzmas and a phillips but the majority of the cars were curtis crafts there were uh in fact uh you've got four six seven six uh if my math is right curtis craft cars were four uh and, and it was the big names it was jimmy bryan and pat o'connor tony bentonhausen eddie Sachs, uh ray crawford troy rutman jim rathman all indie johnny parsons all indie winners um that that came to to strut their stuff and you know paul rightly says the cards were definitely stacked against the the europeans yeah, and that was – I don't think there was any shenanigans there other than the fact that the the Italians so desperately needed to have an American presence and that perhaps they overlooked the importance of having Formula One as part of it. It was a 500-mile race, which is fair enough. It was meant to, to mirror the Indy 500, but they realized that – they probably would end up without any finishes if they ran it as a 500-mile race. So they ran ran it in three 60-lap um, parts to it, which totaled around about 500 miles, which right. which was which was fine. Um, and and again, that's another thing, Paul, that the Americans were used to. We called them heat races, and and there were a lot of races that were done. And still are in the United States. Most short track racing in America, and by short track, I mean 
half, you know, three quarters of a mile or less. Uh, and all of the, the, the weekend, the local racetracks, they run, you know, they, they have qualifying, then they have some heat races and then a main event. And in many of the cases, they take the finishing orders of the heat races. And, and much like motocross, you score points. And the one with the best series of finishes of the heats is the winner. And that's what they uh, that's what they did here. Yeah. And what they what they decided to do was to add the cumulative times of the completed race for each driver. And that's what effectively it was the person who had the highest average speed across the three races who won. And that that first event with uh, two heat wins uh, and, and a good performance in the third one was Jimmy Bryan, uh, who... Was uh, was declared the winner, and he got the thirty five thousand dollar prize fund. Um, Brian, and again, in nineteen fifty eight, that was really good money. It was serious money, serious money, and 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 he averaged one hundred and sixty miles an hour over the full race distance, which, to my mind, is pretty amazing at that sort of time. Oh, and, um, and much faster than Indianapolis at the time. Yes, and and in fact, it was Tony Bettenhausen who earned a world record for the fastest closed circuit speed record at 100, 176 miles an hour, <laughs> now, which, <laughs> which is when the, when the tires were skinny and the drivers were fat. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in a strange way, it's, it kind of justified what the Grand Prix teams were saying, you know, that, that they didn't really have a chance and mm. that, but they, they relented, because there was a 20,000 um, crowd at Monza and there was that $35,000 uh, that they relented for the, the second running of the, of the event and that there were, I think, 18 cars which were entered for that 1958 running and it was a bit, a bit more even, but you've got some of the, some of the big names in road racing um, Fangio was there. Sterling Moss was there. Mike Hawthorne, Luigi Musso, Phil Hill, Maurice Trantignon were all on Maston the list. Gregory. Ma- Maston uh, Gregory was there. Yeah, Ma- Maston Gregory, interestingly, he drove the first race. And then at the end of that, he said, I'm off. I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> now, Maston Gregory was one of the bravest people of his generation. He was famous for when he was when he was driving sports cars which is what he was what he was mainly famous for that if he was in the middle of an accident and was going to hit the bank he would jump out before he hit the bank so that the car didn't hurt him so uh, yes not a man who was easily frightened i don't think but Mustin Gregory drove one race and said thank you very much indeed i'm going home but uh, Nonetheless, for that second one, Jim Rathman um, ran one or three heats, and that uh, I think you know, 166 miles an hour for the uh, for that one. Yeah, which but I think I, is pretty impressive. Very impressive. But you know what impressed me even more? Sterling Moss. Yeah, Sterling Moss in the in the Maserati 420M58 with that Eldorado, that number ten car with the Eldorado on on the side of it. 
um, which is an iconic, iconic car. He Still finished, around. Yeah, he finished fourth in the first heat, fifth in the second heat, uh, and he didn't finish in the third heat because he wrecked. Um, but, you know, the, uh, talk about fearless. Uh, he was not afraid to get out there and mix it up with the IndyCar guys. And it was a, a shame to me that he uh, never got the opportunity to race at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway because I think I think Sterling Moss could have won the Indianapolis 500 before Jim Clark and Graham Hill did in 65 and 66 had Sterling Moss had the desire to come over and race because I think his, uh, you know, as I like to say, he carried him around in a big bowling ball bag. He was, uh, he, yeah. He, he I've, was, I've never thought of that. I've never yeah. ever thought of that. That, yeah. uh, that and, he could and, have and done. And this event, so right. this, this event proves it. You know? And his uh, his accident in heat three in fifty eight, he says, was the most frightening of his career. Um, yeah. That uh, the, I mean that that car he was driving was basically a a two fifty F with a big sports car engine in it. And that uh, it was the throttle stuck open and that he had a huge, huge accident, which uh, which very nearly cost him his life. And that it was just one of those things. And, yeah, you're right. You're right about the bowling balls because uh, <laughs> it would have it would have made all the difference. But and, and, and one last one last bit of trivia. You talked about Mastin Gregory saying enough. Well, Maurice Trentignon said enough after the first heat as well. And do you know who replaced him? Go on. None other than Anthony Joseph Foyt, the young upstart rookie. <laughs> uh, you, you know, there are, there are various things that you think of and you think about people's, people's driving career and what they started with and what they finished with. And, yeah, that's – that's great. I'm, I always think of the fact that David Hobbs' first visit to Le Mans, he was driving an automatic transmission Lotus Elite, <laughs> and you know that finished up driving 962s. So right, yeah, exactly. And, and there's lots of those. But the race of two worlds, um, it's I mean, they, they got a bigger crowd on the second year than the first, but sadly. They never made any money. They were paying the guys to come over from the U.S. Um, they were paying starting money, and that they just couldn't keep it going. So, sadly, no profit. So, it didn't continue, which uh, which I think is a shame. Yeah, and um, it again, money talks, and yep. you you know what walks, and. Um, Unfortunately, in this case, I think it was perhaps an event that was maybe before its time. Uh, maybe not. Maybe maybe it was just an ill-conceived concept. I don't know. Again, uh, we always talk about romance when we when when we talk on this show, and and this is one of those events that perhaps was more romantic than uh, than it it, it it could go. Noted though that um, uh, the Formula One circuit continued to uh, use the banking until. Until 1961, I, and I didn't know that until I started doing the, some of the research for uh, for this conversation. I think there is an irony in all this as well, Jim, because 20 years later, in 1978, another venture brought the whole of the IndyCar circus to the UK, ah, where they ran right. Brands Hatch and Silverstone on uh, 
on consecutive weekends. And Mm -hmm. that only happened once. And that didn't happen anymore because exactly the same reason it cost them a sack of cash simply to do it and that uh, it didn't didn't get off the ground. It cost too much to run, basically, was was the problem. But uh, it was a it was a nice thing while it lasted, wasn't it? And a gorgeous trophy. I don't know if you've ever seen the uh, the trophy. You can no. look it up online. It's uh, three um, three looks like three drivers holding up a, a crown above their heads. Uh, and it's, it's quite a, a beautiful, beautiful trophy that Jimmy Bryan won for winning the, the first one. That's uh, I believe that is at the Indianapolis motor speedway museum. Well, there's uh, I'm sure there's... someone in the Twitter sphere will correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, please. And uh, please don't forget that if you have any thoughts on the race of two worlds and what, might have been, then please let us know either at our Facebook page, Historic Racing News, or at Hist Racing News on Twitter, and we'd love to hear from you. The Historic Racing News Radio Show. But now we go from 1958 right up to the present day, because not just our usual three corridors of power panellists, we've got an extra one. It's buy three and get one free week on the Historic Racing News Radio Show. <laughs> Joining me, I'm delighted to welcome not only my three usual partners in crime, Jim Roller, Paul Jurd and Joe Bradley, but we have self-professed... No, that's unfair. We have Formula One expert, <laughs> Nick Damon. Welcome, uh, Nick. Uh, welcome to, and hello to all of And you have my exact value there, free. <laughs> good well I'm i can't good. stay much he still has my watch <laughs> just got to think of a bet to get it back yeah exactly uh, yeah i think i think you two you need to explain that well um, years years ago and there was uh an attempt by a good friend of mine leo hindry to bring a formula one race to uh, new york city and uh scenes how we're talking about uh great formula one circuits this this seems appropriate um and nicholas said it was a load of crap uh, that it would never happen. <laughs> and, and i disagree uh, as i had an immense amount of faith in my man hindry and for the first time in my life leo i i didn't see leo complete a deal he set out and so at lamar on the pit lane i very reluctantly but honestly uh, turned over to uh, Mr. Damon, my Rolex watch. Yeah, it wasn't like I didn't mug him for getting a question wrong. It was a bet. If yes, I had it was not, a bet. Which wasn't going to happen. He was going to get my signed Ayrton and Senna photograph, which was signed at the Imola weekend 1994. Wow. Okay, so uh, so the, there's another bet coming around the corner to Somewhere, get that yeah. Rolex back. Someday soon, yeah. <laughs> Someday soon, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what did you say? I got to find the sure thing because I can't afford to lose anything more like that. <laughs> no, you, you need to go and buy one of those um, those fake watches and, and put that on the collateral. There you go. And, and, and indeed, there were a lot of people that said I should give them a fake one, and I did not. I gave them my real one, which was uh, uh, I received as an award for uh, journalism excellence. So – I thought it would be. It's appropriate that it went to Nick. Yeah, he, he it, at least appreciates it. Yeah, it, 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 that's why I can't show the back of it anymore. Not because it's got the wrong name. Just no one would believe I had an award for journalism excellence. So <laughs> <it's fine. laughs> 
<laughs> As you say, Jim, our, uh, our subject for the Corridors of Power this time is the greatest Grand Prix tracks of all time. Um, but to make it fair, I have actually put one stipulation in, which is nobody can choose Spa Francorchamps. Um, that's because everybody would want to, and they'd end up fighting in the playground. So I, I really didn't want that. So nobody's got Spa, but uh, we've we've been been through all of this, and clearly there's a lot of experience in the in the virtual room about Formula One. Nick, you've been around Formula One for a long time. Um, Too long. Yes. <laughs> how did you How did you first get involved? Uh, well, my first race I went to was 1976. In at, at Brands Hatch, the Grand Prix, and the first race I ever worked at was the 1978 Grand Prix. However, was I was a grandstand attendant. I wasn't doing anything for the media. <laughs> so, um, and then of course, yeah, the, the story of how I got involved uh, in F1 itself is uh, is far too long for this program. But I'll just say it started by me acting in drag. <laughs> and know, that's all you, know, you need to know, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, do you, do you know that that. Damon is brilliant at just throwing something out there and then not saying anything. <laughs> we'll get you. We'll, we'll get you on that one. We'll uh, and show we'll that are involved. <laughs> they were actually, yeah, they were. Uh, all right. So um, first cab off the rank this time with uh, with our choice of the greatest Grand Prix circuits of all time is going to be Joe Bradley and Joe. Um, talk to us about your top, top three choices. Um, right, okay, in alphabetical order and in no order of preference because it's very hard. Once again, these, these corridor of power things that we do, it's like picking your favourite child, isn't it? Um, it's <laughs> it's pretty impossible. Um, and we, so we've got to pick... No, it's not. Our... I've met your children. Yeah, actually, Jim, <laughs> you're right, man. It's pretty, pretty easy. It'd be pretty easy decision, that one. Um <laughs> So I'm not going to say what it is. Um, so this is this is Grand Prix tracks that uh, can be any from from down history, they don't, from way down in the past, and, and not necessarily being used today. Um, so in alphabetical order, I'm going to go for the Buenos Aires Grand Prix circuit, uh, which was built in the 50s, built uh, just outside of Buenos Aires. And it was one of the first purpose-built circuits in Argentina. And the main reason why they built a purpose-made circuit, a purpose-built circuit, was because um, in Ar- Argentina was very big on road racing. I mean, just look what came out of that road racing scene. Five-time world champion Juan Manuel Fan- Fangio uh, came from that, uh, from that start. Um, but the reason why they, they stopped road racing and went to purpose-built tracks is because basically they were killing people um cars were leaving uh the track and and on the other road and 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 killing people so the government sort of got a grip on this and they built the buenos aires uh track um the autodromo oscar e juan galvez is to give it its full title um and i want to use i'm not going to go for the emasculated short version which was used in the early 70s um, I'm going to go for the full version that was then used later on um, through the late 70s and into the early 80s. And it, the, the track is awesome. It, it's built around a lake, so it was well known for its mosquitoes and its <laughs> stakes, its Argentinian stakes. 
Um, but the, the part of the track that I, I remember distinctly was the from the start it went through a flat out and in the in the early eighty ground effects cars, um, so the Brabham BT forty nine, the Parmalat Brabham of Nelson Peak here and the like would have were taking the uh, the uh, Del Servio S, which was literally flat out. It was a flat out right sweeping left, and then it went into a one hundred and eighty degree sweep. And eventually took you the other way, the opposite direction. But it was huge. It was like, it was called Curve on Disolato. And it was this right-hander that just, in the ground effect days, you know, people's necks were coming off. And then from that, down the back straight, the other side of the lake, and then onto, uh, in complete contrast, was this very tricky and technical uh, through another S bend, a couple of hairpins, and then back onto the start finish straight. And the sort of crowds and the atmosphere that you know you see pictures of the early early races there in the seventies in the crowd, very similar to the atmosphere in Brazil where the crowd of a topless male and female, <laughs> and you've got and you've got you know you've got the, uh, the the horse pipes being turned on them. You've also got armed military policemen. As well to keep the, uh, the 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 crowd in 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 check, and it was it, for me it was one of those tracks where I only ever saw it on TV. I've never been there. Um, it's still being used, but for me it was one of those exotic locations where Formula One, which was exotic, where Formula One uh, raced. Um, so moving quickly on in alphabetical order, uh, my next choice would be the Clermont Ferrand. In oh, France, yes, yes. Um, it's still being used. It's called Charade now, or Charade, if you want to uh, put a French slant on it, or um, just pronounce it properly. Yeah, Circuit de Charade um, is how I'm going to say it. Um, but I'm, I want to, I want to go back to the old, the eight kilometer, the five mile road course, oh. and you still. When you go, if you if you were able to visit Sherrod now, the road as you come out of what is now the main gate of the Circuit de Sherrod is the actual straight after turn one. So you came off the start, you took went through a very fast left hander at turn one, and then you go up this hill, and you then you now go onto what is a roundabout junction. But it wasn't a roundabout, obviously, back in the day. It was a it was a very sweeping right hander, and then you went onto the what is still there and. I urge anyone who's in that area of France to get your sat-nav on your phone and you can actually see, get a map of the track and you can actually see the the road, the public roads, and you can follow the roads round and there's some very tight and twisty hairpins. There's some sheer drops to 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 the just off track and you think they drove, they, they raced Formula One cars here with slicks and wings and those evocative pictures of, Francois Sivier, uh, you know, driving through these very fast, long streets, very, very similar in, in sections to the old Spa road course, which was, you know, arguably the finest uh, Grand Prix track. But um, it was very challenging. It was very, very scary. And you had to be a very, very brave driver to get the best. And, you know, Chris Ehrman was a master there. You know, um, he the, the last Grand Prix was in 1972. Chris Ehrman in the Matra won that. Um, so Clermont Ferrand for many reasons, bravery, challenge, you know, sorted the men from the boys. That's one of my choices. 
Um, and then my final choice, or my third choice, I should say, um, Kyle Army, South Africa. Um, not the current, what I would call emasculated version, um, it, the old version, the, the 1968 to 1988 version, the one with the huge long straight past the pits. Um, you know, it, it, the Crawthorn Corner, that was turn one. And then from Crawthorn into barbecue, the downhill sweep of a right-hander and into the Jusky sweep, which was literally a left-hand kink. Um, Sunset Bend, just the, the names, Clubhouse, that tight left-hander that with the wall on the outside and the, the, the paddock area looking down upon Clubhouse. And then the, the, the S's into the tightest part of the corner, uh, sorry, the tightest part of the circuit, uh, Leacup, or Leacup, it's it's a Dutch name, isn't it, from the, that part of South Africa. Uh, it's a hairpin. It's an uphill hairpin. But it's not a hairpin. It's a sweeping right-hand corner now. It's certainly not what we would class as a hairpin. And then flat out through the kink and then past the pits. And you've got these pictures that we look back on. Or you can, you know, have a look on YouTube and, and have a look at some early Grand Prix that were, were held there. And you've got this huge and long straight. I mean, it's got a... A lot of history, I mean, some sad history, it was the place where Tom Price, Marshall crossing the track in 1977, carrying a fire extinguisher, Tom Price hits him. Um, you know, I, 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 I had the opportunity to speak to Hans Stuck, who was just ahead of Tom Price on the track. Tom Price, maybe a car or two lengths behind him. And Hans told me the story. He said it was like, you know, grace of God, he sees the marshal come over the brow, seize the marshal. And then he thought, as the marshal swept by, um, oh, my goodness, what's just happened behind me? It was tragic. Um, Peter Revson was lost there in 74. Again, one of those circuits where if you were to build it a day, in fact, you know what? What would a current Formula One car around the old Kyle Army, I, I'd, it would probably be doing about 200 and 10 miles an hour into Crowthorn and then through barbecue and Yusky and sunset, it, there would probably be, it would probably be flat out barbecue and the Yusky sweep would be absolutely flat chat in a current day formula one car with all that downforce. Um, yeah. And that's, and that's one of the reasons that uh, it was so much more exciting then, of course. I, th I think so. Yes. And one of the f most fabulous races I've ever seen, our good friend, Andrew Marriott, I think, was the commentator on the 1978 South African Grand Prix. It was held on a Saturday, bizarrely, but like Silverstone, the British Grand Prix used to be held on a Saturday. But the uh, and, and bizarrely, for the UK, it was televised live. And we had those laps where Ronnie Peterson in the Lotus 78 and Patrick Depaye in the Tyrrell were side by side through barbecue, through Yusky, into Sunset and Clubhouse, literally side by side, all the way through the S's. Fabulous. Thank you, Joe, very much indeed. Um, next, uh, next, we're going to talk to Paul Jurd. Uh, Paul has uh, a reputation, even this early in the series, of some interesting and off-the-wall choices. And, Paul, tell us about what you've come up with. Um, yeah, well, hopefully I can pronounce this correct, actually, because my first choice is Rouen Les Césars. 
which is that classic road circuit in northwest France near, strangely enough, Rouen. Hosted the French GP five times, 1952 with uh, Alberto Ascari winning. So there's a classic name right the way through to 1968, where there was another Ferrari win, but it was Jackie X in the wet. And you know, this is just a circuit that had everything. You know, just to go through part of the lap, it's got a cobbled hairpin. You've got to love a circuit with a cobbled hairpin, haven't you? And then it had a climb up through the wooded hillside that featured five corners at an average gradient gradient of 9%. And, you know, this is is not the big wide open expanses of a circuit. This really is going through woodland. A high-speed blast along the N138 auto route. And then there was a 90-degree turn down to the pits. And as you pass the pits over the start-finish line, you really go into the feature that, that for me just makes this a... You know, almost an unforgettable circuit, which is a series of high-speed downhill sweeps with high embankments on either side. And it's just a superb sequence of corners. You know, one mistake in the early corner becomes a bigger and bigger mistake through each subsequent curve as you're getting out of position. And you know, you come to that final curve, you're actually having to break mid-corner to actually get shed all that speed to get round that hairpin. And it was just a section of circuit that you know rewarded all the greats. There is an amazing picture you can find of Fangio going through there in a Maserati 250F, little bit of opposite lock on the cars in a drift. And that is through a sequence of flat out corners in top gear. And, and really for me, Fangio makes this the circuit because, you know, if you ever have access to a time machine and we do every now and then use it to go back to the 7th of July, 1957, and you can truly witness a master in action. That was the French Grand Prix. And unusually for Fangio, he'd actually made a, made a bad start. And so he made up for it in the early laps by attacking that downhill section with, uh, well, some people were saying with an aggression that wasn't like him, but even so it was still stylish in that series of power slides. And he was even putting the Maserati sideways to scrub off speed at that Nouveau Monde, Nouveau Monde hairpin. And he actually found that putting the car sideways into the chicane meant he was straighter and got a better exit. So you know, it worked always, let alone the uh, spectators who were loving it. But uh you know, he looked stylish. One journalist was saying that once he was in the lead, Fangio looked like he was sat in an armchair while the pursuing Musso, Collins and Hawthorne were working hard in pursuit. Dennis Jenkinson, and you know, probably one of the, the, the leading journalists of the 50s and 60s writing about Formula One, he called the circuit the, fi- the finest in all France and uh, second only to Spa. So if we're not allowed Spa, this has to win. And uh, <laughs> Get your claim in early, Paul. Was it, re- was it really that obvious? Very American of you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I, I, I learned everything from you, Jim. And uh, he said that downhill section really sorts the men from the boys and that viewing there on those high embankments allows spectators to see the art of Grand Prix driving at its best. It was such a quick circuit. 1964, the last time it was dry, the dry race there, Dan Gurney won in a Brabham, and that was in the 1500cc era at an average speed of 108.766. And that included that first gear hairpin. So that was a really, really quick circuit when men were men. Okay, well, we'll, uh, we'll mark that one down, Ron, as they say. What's your second one? My second one is is just that forgotten Grand Prix, British Grand Prix circuit, Aintree. And, and yes, it is the Aintree of Grand National Horse Racing fame, fame which was really the jewel in the crown of British motorsport in the 50s because at the time it had facilities like no other circuit, it had imposing permanent grandstands, full buildings that the uh, crews could use for the cars and the pits, and actually hosted the British Grand Prix five times and threw up some memorable races. First time Formula One went there in 1955, Sterling Moss took his first Grand Prix win in that Mercedes-Benz W196. Two years later when the race came back, 
it was the first win for a British driver in a British car where Moss took over Tony Brooks' fan wall to bring it home. And then in 1959, you had Jack Brabham winning in the rear-engine Cooper in the season that showed that rear-engine cars really were the future. And the circuit was very popular at a time when most other tracks were converted airfields. The grandstands and the permanent buildings really set it apart. And, you know, if you went anywhere else, you were dealing with scaffolding structures and tents. And here you had actual buildings and huge, great grandstands. It was a three-mile lap with nine corners and followed the perimeter roads of the horse racing track, uh, other than quick duck into the infield to go around the golf clubhouse. Very civilised. But in the opposite direction to where the horse racing went. And many of the corner names were taken from the race course, the Medding Road Crossing, and a quick corner at the end of the railway straight that took the cars back towards the grandstand after Beecher's, Beecher's Bend. So Moss said it was a circuit that put a surprisingly heavy premium on driving technique, even though it was flatter than most of my gags. And um, he, also, <laughs> he also declared that two of the corners, Waterways and Beecher's Bend, could be taken with gay abandon. And I so hope that a Formula One driver these days uses that phrase again. Nick, Nick. It's a circuit saying that just raised standards, particularly for spectators, upset a lot of the old schools being too far from London, hard to get to because of the crowds that attractive. So would it have been more popular if less people went there? And it's time in the sun was over by the end of 62. But I think Aintree should stand high in the list of classic British circuits. And that was the home of some notable British successes. As I said, it's an off the wall uh, decision there, Paul. So uh, Aintree and Rouen, what's your third one? Well, I thought I really ought to include a circuit that's still in use. So uh, Suzuka. How can you beat Suzuka? Outstanding circuit, the home to so much Formula One drama since it appeared on the schedule in 1987. And and the first five races there all decided the Formula One driver's title. Yeah, you had uh, 1988 where Senna reeled in Prost after stalling at the start, you know, stalling at the start. And it was really, you know, showed what he could do on the wet track. And then then the next two years. Prost and Senna coming together in very different ways. First time at that chicane while fighting for the lead. And next year, and I think this is possibly a podcast all on its own, that first corner incident where uh, they collided, went off into the gravel, and that gave Senna the title. Then you had what? Damon Hill with yeah. Michael Schumacher in 94. <laughs> yeah, you know, you, you're picturing it in your head there, Jim. Yes, I was. And then in 2000, you had Schumacher holding off Hakkinen for the title. And in 2005, Raikkonen winning from 16th on the grid after being caught by the changeable weather in qualifying and passing Fisichella with a lap to go to take that win. And you just don't seem to get dull races at Suzuka. And it's certainly a circuit with more than its fair share of memorable races and moments. Thanks, Paulie. That's, uh, that's good stuff. And uh, it's, um, yeah, off the wall. Good stuff indeed. It's time now for... Uh, the Formula One brain box, that is Nick Damon, who is uh, who is now going to share some ideas. We gave you first choice on all of these, Nick. Oh, really? So... Thank you very much. I've, I've also made notes on everyone else's choices so far, so I've got loads of things to come back on this so far has happened. <laughs> oh, good. Oh, good. <laughs> I, told, I told you we used a brain box. Um, uh, so what are your three? I knew the well, topless men and women I, in Argentina I, 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 would catch your eye. Much as I've loved joe's beautiful descriptions of track designs um grand prix are the reason everyone wants to wants to have a grand prix and wants to hold a grand prix is it's it's about it's an event the point of the race is the event itself it's not necessarily the cars going around the track 
And that is the difference, I think, between that and any other motor race which we see, yeah. possibly the exception of the Indianapolis 500 and, and Le Mans, where they, it's the event that counts. It's not the race. It's the event. Mm. So, I, I, mm. so I've chosen, I've chosen my, my first, my favourite, and I've chosen the winner. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're getting American. I know. So I'm going to start off with Brand Hatch. Um, interestingly, my opening line Brand Hatch was it's by far the best British circuit. Um, better than uh, Silverstone, obviously Aintree, because it's got hills. That always helps. Um, but no, Brand Hatch was my first, first Grand Prix I saw there, first motor race I saw there. Um, you know, I saw all the Grand Prix from from 76 to when the last one was held, which I should remember, it was 85 or 86. Um, you know, it, it, that's, that's the place really where my, where my entire love of you know, the, the top echelon of motorsports started. I wasn't somebody who actually went down to, you know, even though it's only 20 miles from my house, I didn't go down and, and watch a, a clubby or a you know, touring car race or anything like that. I mean, I was too busy racing toy cars, to be honest, at that time. Uh, so, that, But, I, you know, I'd always make sure I went to the Grand Prix and uh, normally my dad, which is obviously another great memory. And, and, it, and it is obviously, whilst now completely unsuitable for F1 cars, back then completely suitable for F1 cars. And the fabulous pictures of the... Uh, of the uh, power sliding and the oversteering cars going around Paddock Hill Bend and up through Druids. And, and, and one of the most fabulous things of all is when you see the cars come back from the Grand Prix loop and just burst out and in, and into, into a, a clearways. It's always one of the greatest views from the, uh, from the spectator bank. You've got in my lucky can case from the, uh, from the grandstands. Can, I, grand can I interject there, Nick? Like can I just... My dad was one giving out the jobs in that day, so that was quite good. Yes. Interesting, my dad... My, I, 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 can I, you I, hear me, Nick? Can anyone hear me? Stories. My dad I was a Batman. Yeah, I got you, my, my dad was a VAT man, and um, he used to do the VAT for um, John Webb at Brands Hatch. And for some reason, we kept getting free tickets, which now I think is suspicious. At the time, we just that's actually happened, isn't it? Really, you got free stuff. You were allowed to say yes, <laughs> but possibly don't know. I was, like, but yes, it was, suddenly we just turned up places. Oh, that's nice. Brilliant. Um, so Brands Hatch is my first one. I mean, I think it's yeah. It, 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 um, in the limited time it ran, there were multiple classic races. Obviously, the, the um, incredibly controversial race of '76. We saw uh, Mansell's first win, but yeah, I mean, I think it's it's your home track should always be the track you should put forward as the greatest track of all, unless obviously you happen to live near Silverstone, in which case you just have a boring airfield. <laughs> right, what's number two? Number two is the is when I was doing, but I used to F one, you know, when I was doing F one, it was the race I looked forward to most um, because I just enjoyed going there so much, and that was Montreal um for the circuit de gilles villeneuve or ile de montreal and it was just again a fantastic event it helps that the the racetrack despite not having many ups and downs being next to a boating lake um it produced a number of good races also had variable weather but it was a montreal was a great place to be and the canadians are, are great motor racing fans it's it's just got a fantastic atmosphere um you know i have memories of great races we've been fantastic races Normally, it pulls up a good race every couple of years. We've had controversy with Vettel the last time round moving the winning boards. We've had the uh, what was voted the best race of the, the modern era when uh, Jensen Button took four hours to win a race and it kept raining. Um, you know, we have the Wall of Champions where, you know, three, three, three world champions slam themselves into the wall on the same year. My memory of that is I was sent to go and try and get an interview from Michael Schumacher after he'd done it. And I was doorstepping because in those days you had to do doorstepping. You didn't wait for them to become a little pen. You had to do the work and doorstep them. So I doorstepped. They said, Michael, uh, says, well, what happened? Brilliant question, I thought. Uh, and <laughs> he turned around and, st- and, and caught me with the gaze that only Michael Schoenig did. Have you no respect for a human being? 
Realistically, wow. there's, no, there's no follow-up question to that one, is there really? So you go, that's oh, <laughs> fine. <laughs> but yeah, he wasn't prepared to talk at that point because he'd thrown it into a wall. He was, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. But um, I also managed to get myself um, ridiculed on BBC Radio 1 Breakfast uh, after the Canadian Grand Prix. Um, we were, Ralph Schumacher won there in, um, I think, 2000, I think, in beating his brother. And we were very, very, I think we were, we were probably still hung over from the previous night, a bit, a bit stir crazy. So we decided to ask an amusing question, um, which obviously couldn't have fallen flatter if it had been Pancake Day under a £20,000 press. Um, to which I asked, I said to, I said to, I said to Ralph, I, said, uh, I can't remember the exact words, I said, like, um, uh, well, pole position, uh, you won the race, you've beaten your brother. Is this the most fun you've had with your trousers on? Uh, obviously, that was the worldwide press conference, and he looked at me like I, you know, like well, I'm sure you're looking yeah. at me now, going, "That really wasn't amusing in the first place." Uh, yes, it and, was. And apparently, <laughs> apparently, I didn't like. I didn't hear it. Apparently, I was completely uh, ridiculed on uh, on the Sarah Cox show the following morning as the worst, uh, the worst interviewer ever. Which is title <laughs> oh. manager I've been trying to keep up ever since, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> doing very well. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, yeah, so it's all, all formed around me. But, but I think I would say that the Montreal circuit, though, has has also provided some fantastic, you know, stories and results. John Lazy's at first and only win. Nigel Mansell waving far too early and uh, car breaking down. Sorry, <clears throat> not not mistake from Nigel, of course. Um, no. you know, the multiple wins by by Schumacher and Hamilton. Hamilton ramming in the back of Raikkonen in the pit lane. Um, you know, it's, it's a, it nearly always produces a good result, and it's a great place to go as well. Now, talking of uh, not being Nigel Mansell's fault, um, move on to your third one. <laughs> well, my third one is the winner. And the reason being, because this is about great F1 Grand Prix and circuits. If you distill F1 down to its absolute constitutional parts, there are only two elements you can't do without. Element one is Ferrari. Element two is the Monaco Grand Prix. That is Formula One. And as long as those two things exist, Formula One will always exist. You lose one or the other and it starts to get very wobbly. And Monaco is the greatest Formula One event every year and the greatest location for a motor race that we currently have and certainly have had for the last 80 years. There is no atmosphere like it in the world. And I've, I've been lucky enough to go to all, all the big races apart from the Indy 500. Though I have been to the Indy Grand Prix, which is, I'm sure, near or thereabouts. But there's no atmosphere. No, like it's the, not. There's no atmosphere <laughs> like the. Well, I will leave America alone. I would go, but no one paid me. Um, there's no atmosphere like it. The, the, the if you actually walk in there, the, the free sort of having the crowd up on the up on the. Uh, I call banks, but up at the cliffs, effectively, everyone's crushing the way the sound reverberates off all the houses. The pure ridiculousness of having a race running around, you know, it doesn't peak, it's like riding a bicycle around your bathroom. But it's still, on, on the Saturday, the ultimate test of man and machine in Formula One, and it's always been the same. And that's why the great drivers are the ones who are multiple Monaco champions. You don't, you know, there's, there's a few of one erroneous, like Oliver, Olivier Parnis. But on the whole, if you've won multiple Monacos, it's because you're a great driver and it produces, you know, astounding images, astounding events, you know, and it, it, the, the class always rises to the top. But it doesn't really matter about that because Monaco is F1. Okay, that's good. Thank you for that. And, uh, yep, I'm sure that lots of people are writing lots of notes as we speak. But uh, we've kept, uh, kept Jim Roller till last. And um, one of the reasons for that is because he won last time out. And 
that was when we featured the it's a reverse grid, Jim. Um, yes, yes. But, uh, something I'm quite familiar with. <laughs> we um, we featured the greatest Formula One liveries of all time, and Jim, you got the uh, the vote in the studio for uh, for your choice of Gold Leaf Team Lotus as the greatest Formula One livery. But you have something to live up to because if I tell you that on the Historic Racing News Facebook page where we put the results and asked for our listeners' public vote, it was a very different picture. In got thrashed, didn't I? <laughs> yeah. Um, putting it I, – I wouldn't do that, but then I'm not an American. But um, <laughs> I, I'm being a bit more subtle than that. Uh, in third place with um, 5% of the votes – was the JPS colour scheme. In second place was Paul Jurd's choice, which was the Green Lotus with the yellow stripe, which got just 8% of the votes. Goldleaf Team Lotus wasn't even in the top three, and the Flying Cigarette Packets got something like 3% of the votes. But, Jim, don't be downhearted because... Your choice of the Ferrari from the sort of 75, 76 seasons with an amazing 76% of the votes was winner, winner, chicken dinner, Mr. Roller. So well done on that. You you got got a double whammy there. Yeah, yeah. Is that a BOGO? Because you get three, buy one free? I guess that's a... So all the pressure on you then, Jim, that uh, you've got to you've got to come up with something which is going to win again. So what are your three? Well, I'm going to uh, start with the Nurburgring, um, that venerable the Nordschleife, not uh, the uh, as Joe likes to say, emasculated um, bit of uh, asphalt that is uh, at the base of the castle now. Uh, the Nordschleife uh, was used the green hell uh the full nurburgring was 20 miles long and after the war they only used the uh, the nordschleife for uh cars they used the sudschleife for um motorcycles mostly but from uh 1947 to uh 1970 the um it was really the the center of of german motorsport um and much like Paul's um, Paul Jurd's recollections of Fangio at Rouen, um, in 1957 was possibly Fangio's greatest drive ever, and mm. it was at the Nurburgring where he had to change a flat tire, uh, left the pits in last position, and after the 14-mile circuit, uh, was basically back in the lead as he passed the field. So. Uh, when you have places like that, the stories like that, um, of course, uh, the good and the bad, Nicky Lauda, his crash in 1976 that almost cost him his life. Um, the, the place is uh, a test of man and machine. Uh, we've heard that throughout as uh, at least one of us has, uh, all of us has, have at least picked one racetrack that we felt was a, a test of the men in the machine and had that element of danger. 
And it was not until after Lauda's crash in 76 that the Formula One community really started to question whether they should be racing there because of safety. And then in 1983, they built what is the current uh, configuration, and that's gone through a couple of minor changes, I, I, I think. Nick could correct me on that if I'm wrong. Um, but uh, the Nordschleife is still used for things like the 24 hours of the Nürburgring and, and that sort of stuff. But I would put forth the, the Nordschleife because it always got the attention of men like uh, Jackie Stewart and Graham Hill, uh, Sterling Moss. And uh, when when guys like that respect the place, then it, it tells me that that place has some special elements to it. Okay, good good choice there. And uh, number two? Number two would be uh, Silverstone. Um, and not the current configuration. Um, really, I'm talking about the configuration of the racetrack pretty much up through, oh, I'm looking for my map. Here it is. Uh, up through b- before 2010. Um, I was at Abbey in 1985 when K.K. Rosberg completed the first 150-mile-an-hour lap in a Formula One car. And for many years, Silverstone, even though it's flat and a lot of people thought it was boring, um, it was exciting because it was so fast. And it rivaled Monza each year as the fastest circuit. Well, in 85, it was the first uh, lap at over, you know, at 150 miles an hour for a Formula One car. The other significance of Silverstone is it was the first. The first modern Formula One Grand Prix in 1950 was held at Silverstone. So I think uh, the history of that original layout with uh, start-finish line, then into uh, Cops, Maggots, Beckett's, the long run down to, down to Stowe, Club, Abbey, and the woodcoat um that is the that's the, that old venerable circuit for me will always always be be special jim jim yeah joe can i can i you 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 just mentioned keke rosberg's lap in the 1985 qualifying for the grand prix mm-hmm. um i actually saw that i did too yeah i, I was, was standing on the, on the outside i was standing on driver's right at abbey well, I was I was on the outside um, on the appro- on the approach to the chicane, and so he was coming straight towards me out of Abbey from you. Isn't it amazing how we were crossing <laughs> paths and became mates all those years later? Um, so he was coming straight towards me, and the speed that he kept in the oh. car as he turned right, then left, then right in the chicane. I actually stood up in my seat in my grandstand seat getting ready to bail out because he was coming into the grandstand. It was just, it was one of those moments where you go, wow, I've, uh, uh, how did he just do that? I've just seen something there. And all of these years later, I can still see that in my head. It was incredible. Fantastic. And you know, you mentioned him earlier. The reason I was there, our good friend, Andrew Marriott. Oh, God. Uh, our paths were crossing. So yes, yes. Oh, yeah. Right, your third one. Third one, uh, to Nick Damon's point, you got to pick your home Grand Prix. 
I was lucky enough to be uh, spend the formative years of my life growing up in Watkins Glen, New York, actual graduate of Watkins Glen High School. I've bored you all with the stories in the past, but for me, the the original configuration, the, the racetrack from its original original configuration when Innes Ireland won in 1961 up through the extension to the boot uh, in 1973 before Jody Schechter got a hold of it and emasculated it with that stupid chicane and other things that were done. The bus stop was put in. Again, it was another one of those racetracks that separated the men from the boys. Um, it was very popular amongst the drivers because of its flow and its um, prize money. But yeah, I was going to go there. Yeah, that was next. That was next. Uh, it's flow and it's, and it's rhythm is the word I was looking for. And secondly, the prize money was stunning for the day. We've talked about that before. It was in the 50,000s of dollars, which is hundreds of thousands of dollars. You know, it's just, it was frightening money back in the day, especially in the, in the 60s. By the 80s, it had kind of leveled out a little bit, but it was still great money. Um, and much like the Nürburgring, 1980 was the last Formula One race at Watkins Glen, as it was at uh, the old Nordschleife. So there's some some synergy there. And again, it was another one of those places that the, the Mosses and the Hills and the Stuarts all in, enjoyed coming to um, because uh, of, of the racetrack. And to Nick's point, in America... It was an event, and it proved to almost be its undoing because part of the event was um, the bog, and some of the shenanigans that went on there proved to be uh, problematic for race organizers. Uh, but in all in all, uh, well, were they again, drinking shenanigans or sexual shenanigans? Yes. Because <laughs> on a completely unrelated note, which you can cut out, I always remember the well, the, the weirdest thing I ever saw was a Hungaro ring, um, which obviously was, was where you get a lot of people in from uh, from Germany, also from oddly from Finland, um, and where the the prices were universally low for every service, um, <laughs> and they set up porter cabins for a certain service, which would have queues of men outside them, <laughs> and I was sitting there thinking. What? You're ninth in the queue. Yeah. You can see the eight people ahead of you. <laughs> Do you really need that service that badly? That's yeah, you, you'd, you, you'd want to be very clear about who the other eight were, wouldn't you? Exactly. It's a, it's a Grand Prix, there's nothing else going on. <laughs> <laughs> moving up. Moving wow. Up. Thank, wow. Thank you for that, Jim. That's, um, that's good. So uh, I think we all probably need a bit of thinking time now and i've i've heard the various the historic racing news radio show now paul it's it's a regular occurrence that you walk into the historic racing news studio with it has to be said a somewhat tatty old book that you found in a second-hand bookshop, which goes on to be a riveting read. But um, you have a you have a local bookshop who uh, who you've got in your thrall. I'm very fortunate in actually quite close to my house. There is a second-hand bookshop, and the gentleman puts to one side anything motorsport related for me. And I have come across some 
pure gems. In, even on one occasion, he just said, I've got a box of books. I haven't had a chance to sort through them. Give me a prize for them. And I've come home with 14 or 15 books in a box. Oh, I bet that's popular at home. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, shelves are bulging. But, but, yeah. but this this time I've actually come across a, a lovely copy of, and I've, I've been not looking forward to saying the name of this book, but My Motoring Reminiscences by S.F. Edge. Now, you may not have heard of it. Well, you may have heard of S.F. Edge, Paul, but if anyone hasn't, you know, every generation, if you like, has got its racing heroes, you know, be it Moss, Clark, Hunt, Mansell, Hamilton these days. But in the early 1900s in the UK, that would have been Selwyn Francis Edge. And he was the first driver really to grasp that racing success could mean commercial success. And uh, he won the 1902 Gordon Bennett Trophy, defeating the hitherto dominant French in what was then a major event. And uh, yeah, he was instantly one of Britain's sporting heroes. So was he? He was quite a character, to be quite honest. If you see any picture of him, he's got this piercing stare and a and a moustache you could hide a badger in, basically. <laughs> um <laughs> But he was born in Australia, came back to the UK when he was young, always very competitive, raced for the GB team in a big cycle race in France when he was younger. And uh, But he was one of these people, you know, of that era. He was a gentleman and he knew his place and he knew the place of his lessons. There's a section at the back of the book of amusing things that happened while I was driving. And in one of them, someone throws a snowball at him when he's near Crawley one night. So he jumps off his car, chases the man across two fields, strips him of all his clothes... <laughs> Gives him the rough edge of his tongue and leaves him there and drives off. And on another occasion, they have an altercation with a pony and trap, which involves him quite happily in his story, telling how he put it right by jumping on the trap, taking the man's whip and soundly lashing him with it. Oh, so, uh, yes, very much, very much perhaps a man of his time, although uh, he would end up in jail these days. I think. Oh, exactly. Yeah. But this is told with relish. This is you know, p- p- putting the lesser man in his place. Yes, yes, I mean, that's the way it's seen. Now, you, you said about the, the 1902 Gordon Bennett Trophy. Um, certainly in the UK, the expression Gordon Bennett um, has, uh, has become just one of those, Gordon Bennett. But uh, he, was, he, was a, he was a newspaper man, wasn't he? It, was, it actually refers to James Gordon Bennett Jr. And um, he he actually his publication sponsored a number of events he was actually very keen to provoke the development of automobile technology but also aircraft and other types of technology and uh, yeah he was quite a character actually he was essentially for a while exiled to europe from new york for having competed in an un- unforgivable faux pas when uh, in front of his fiance's parents when uh, i think the phrase the newspapers used to use is tired and emotional <laughs> yeah he, uh, he mistook the fireplace of the room for a urinal and that uh, relieved himself which was that marriage over and, <laughs> yeah, then he was sort of yeah excommunicated from New York society and, became, and actually moved to Paris for a few years. But uh, you know, the Gordon Bennett Trophy was a big event. The 1902 event was run from Paris to Winsbrook, and uh, you know, there's probably a whole another podcast here. But this was in the days of those great city to city races, when really not only were people sort of discovering what you could do with cars and how you had to build a car, but also. What was a race? What what did you do to actually compete in so, these cars? So, how Paris to Innsbruck? How how far is Paris to Innsbruck? It's it was actually three hundred and twenty eight miles. Oh right, oh you happen to know that? Yep, yep. But it was actually a, th- a three day event. They they actually actually paused over the three days because you know got to 
essentially, you know, we're not talking tarmacked roads. We are talking roads that were supporting horses and carriages just a decade or so before. Yeah. So, you know, that is a huge distance. And, uh, you know, there were strict rules for the race. Each nation was allowed to enter three cars, which really annoyed the French because their car industry at the time was so much bigger than anybody else's. They could have entered 30 easily. Oh, well, it, was, it wasn't a waste of time then if it annoyed the French. Oh, well, there is that to it. There was a maximum weight limit. You know, n- the cars had to be no more than 995 kilo. And probably the big rule is the fact that every component on the car had to come from its country of origin. And also similar to Le Mans in a way that once once you're actually traveling, only the driver and riding mechanic can work on the car. And again, only using tools and parts that they were carrying, including the uh, the tires and the inner tubes, which uh, they got through a lot. Presumably in those those far off and, and heady times, the, there was no trouble in finding um, an all British car. So uh, what was he driving? He actually drove a Napier, one of those wonderful forgotten brands. And um, they'd actually had a go the year before and they had built a 16.4 litre four cylinder engine that developed 100 miles and 100 brake horsepower, sorry, at a whole 800 RPM. And uh, basically shredded its tyres every time they put the throttle down. <laughs> so for 1902, they cut it way, way back to 6.4 litres. So it was half the weight, used a drive shaft in case instead of train drive. And uh, it delivered a, a more useful 45 brake horsepower. And, you know, if you track down a picture of the car, and I did manage to find a couple, it, it's just almost what you visualize. It's a basic wooden chassis, large large square radiator at the front, 34-inch diameter oak wheels, shot with tyres only three and a half inches wide, and uh, a three-speed gearbox. And then at the back, a 35-gallon fuel tank, which um, Edge and his riding mechanic sat on. Well, that's nice and safe. Well, exactly. Yeah, different era, basically, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And interesting you should say about Napier because um, I've I've had some some sort of crossover with Napier. Uh, You know that I was involved with with Pertec for some time, uh, who uh, who sponsored Andrew Jordan in the British Touring Car Championship, and that Pertec now operate out of the site that was the Napier factory in in Acton in West London and uh, that all those buildings are still there it's they've obviously been changed but it's a it's a quite a large industrial estate because Napier built all sorts of stuff and they they built trains and you know all those um all those really early London buses that you see um with the with the staircase coiling up the back they were Napiers, really. And, yeah, and and they they were a huge company, but presumably they were doing this to uh, promote the brand because we we know that motoring was known for being called called as being fraught with detail with difficulties, and I guess that probably is is how, how it was. But how how did the event go? To, to be honest, it was dramatic even before the start. Just driving from the Napier Works up in London down to down to Folkestone, they they split the cylinder head on the car and had to get another one rushed down and actually change that on the ferry on the way to France. Then from right. the ferry port to to Paris, they managed to strip out second gear, and they've only got three gears, remember? Right. So when they got to Paris, Edge knew someone who owned a factory. <laughs> contacts. It's always contacts, isn't it? Yep. And they had to use the factory to repair the gear, but they cleared every Frenchman out the factory because they were so concerned about infringing this rule about everything coming from the country. They didn't want someone of a different nationality to even work on the car. 
Wow. So they spent all night doing that. And they'd already spent an all night to getting the car ready down to the ferry. They then took it off for the tests, like, you know, you're the equivalent of scrutineering, got stopped by the police on the way there and were only let off when the policeman realized he'd raced against Edge in a cycle race many, many years before. Oh, brilliant. Brilliant. They got to the event and, again, one of the rules was the car had to reverse and they found it would, would just literally just jump out of reverse. So apparently Edge put every rev it had on it, slammed it into reverse, the car fired backwards and they got that box ticked. <laughs> at which point they then went back to the factory because they realized they'd forgotten to fit one part of the gearbox back on and did their third consecutive all-nighter. And this was before the 3 a.m. start of that very first leg. So we can assume that uh, that after that it was plain sailing. It wasn't too bad, actually. They had an early misfire, which disappeared, and then they had a puncture, which then which they then discovered that their foot pump, their pump to pump the tyres up didn't work. But this is that life again. Just happened to be passing was Count Zabrowski, the man of Chitty Bang Bang fame and Brooklyn's fame, who lent them a pump, which was hopefully was a British pump. Let's put it that way. Yes, yes, of course. So they finally arrived at the first stop in Belfort, then had to go and find a hotel. There was no planning in advance. They hadn't sorted anywhere to stay. They actually found a hotel, but were worried about getting up for the 3 a.m. start. So paid a local policeman to throw stones at their window to wake them up at just gone two o'clock so they could get ready for the start. Because you'd have to get up and shave and put on your best clothes. Well, in this case, they got up, went to where the car had been stored to find that all four tyres were flat. So they had to change all of those. There was a neutral stage through Switzerland. Third morning, again, having found a hotel, all four four tyres were flat again. There was a theme developing here, as you can tell. But by that point as well, this was a race of attrition. And in fact, the French entries had all fallen out, as had the others. And it was just now really Edge in his Napier against Rennie de Knife in his Panhard. And uh, literally, it was suddenly the race was on, basically. And they did. They went up and down the Eiberg Pass, which was a long, long, long downhill. And in his book, actually, Edge actually says it was ter- sorry, rather terrifying was the phrase he uses. Rather terrifying. Rather terrifying, which I think if, if Edge said it was terrifying, it was beyond that and a bit more. Yeah. And just as they got to the bottom, their friend Charles Jarrett, another famous racer of the period, came up and told them the knife was out and all they had to do was get themselves to Winsbrook. All right. And now, presumably we can... We can look on that as uh, as being a significant victory, and that the start of a golden era for British motorsport. You'd hope so, wouldn't you? Oh, but, but essentially, yeah, they they won the Gordon Bennett Trophy first time the French hadn't won it, and, and that actually promoted the Gordon Bennett for a few short years to be one of the major events. And the USA were entering teams, Italy were entering teams, but sadly, that was it internationally for the British for over twenty years with the next significant win of any sort was Sir Henry Seagrave in the uh, 1923 French Grand Prix when he took victory in the Sunbeam. So uh, that's probably a story for another day. Right, it's crunch time, chaps. This is uh, your chance to make your comments. I'm (laughs) I'm dreading this. Joe Bradley started with uh, Clermont Ferrand, Pile Army and Buenos Aires. Uh, Nick, thoughts? Well, Buenos Aires, I wrote three things down. I wrote, because I've, I've actually been to the track, It was, and it, these are the three, I've been to the track twice, um, and these are the three things that come to mind, which will get, make you say how, how great a track it is. The three are best yeah. stakes, 
prettiest women and worst hire car. There you go. <laughs> That's there you go. there is to me. What uh, more do you need? Literally no impression whatsoever. You okay. can tell those of us that work on the road for a living because that's the kind of list we all make <laughs> yeah. for every town we go to. Yeah. The thing oh, is, honestly, the girls are fabulous in Buenos Aires. Oh, I know. <laughs> the thing is, though, Nick, to consider, I I went for the older configuration with the S's in, in the curve on, whereas I think the modern iteration that you would have went in the late 90s was the shorter version yeah, was, of the track. Yeah, yeah but the yeah, stakes would be the same, the women would be the same, the cars would be yeah. any better in 50s. Oh, yeah, yeah, so. yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> same stakes, same topless women and men, whatever your preference is, um, and still being hosed down by the uh, by the armed guards. But um, the, the Mickey Mouse part of the track was a complete contrast to the sweeps of the older circuit. And so, you know, yeah, I, I mean that would I, I would love to. That's a part of the world I would love to visit, just for the uh, Argentinian women. I think is the main thing. Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, any other thoughts on Joe's uh, choices, Nick? Well, I do remember I was there. One, I think I was there, and the, um, the, the normally the, uh, there's, there's, there's a big grandstand in front of the, uh, the pit lane. So normally most of the people on the Friday. And there's a quite a good crowd. They're outside there so they can look into the Ferrari pit because it's the place to be, or perhaps McLaren in those days. No, everyone was at the other end. There was this massive crowd and all the TV and everything was down the other end because uh, Esteban Tuero was, right, was racing for Minardi. And he's the only Argentinian in the thing. And, and Esteban Tuero, if you met him, was a straight... He, he honestly looked like the seventh in command in a very, very low-ranking Boston hoodlum gang. It was like... <laughs> if he came in chewing a matchstick, you wouldn't have been surprised. But it was quite a nice chap. But he actually, he, he, he stopped, he, he did for F1 for a year. He got, had a contract a second year and he just said he didn't want to do it anymore. <laughs> just gave oh, up. Wow. Uh, gave up for a few years, then went to Argentinian touring cars and did really, really well. Nick, Paul chose Aintree, Suzuka and Ruan. Um, any thoughts on that, Laura? Yeah, Ruan, definitely. Um, don't know why I didn't choose Ruan. Um, it was, it's one of those places, again, if you're in that part of France, you've got to visit it. You've got to retrace the circuit. And up until very recently, the grandstands and the pit boxes were all still there. And I believe, tell me if I'm wrong, that they have now been demolished and cleared, yeah, they have. Uh, which is uh, which is an absolute crime. Um, Jim, you remember this. We yeah, were in I was France. With you. Yeah, we were on our way to Le Mans. And we had Chuck with us, and Chuck was really keen, being a, uh, a motorsport. Yeah, Chuck Dressing was with us, being a, a big motorsport historian. And we wanted to show him the cobbled hairpin of the Nouvelle Monde hairpin, which we'd seen. And you go, as Paul described, we go down these sweeps, which were, you know, you had to try and take flat, and that evocative picture of Fangio over the oversteer. And which as we, we get tried to, the to do in our loaned Audi. Of course we did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We did. <laughs> I, 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 I mean, we were flat out at 80 mile an hour and the tyres screeching as we went into the Nouvelle Monde. And as we got to the Nouvelle Monde, just about to turn hairpin right, and oh my God, they've tarmacked over it. It was like and we and missed the breaking point, went straight on towards the roundabout at the bottom of the road. It was like, what have they done? They, they tarmacked over the cobbled hairpin at the Nouvelle Monde. Absolutely. I think I, think I really but it's typical. I really it's typical yeah. French roadworks. They didn't do a very good job. And we were able to <laughs> yeah. and actually pick at the asphalt. 
and we could see the cobbles underneath it. And poor, poor Charles was beside himself. He even wrote in a, in a column that some son of a bitch, quote unquote, had <laughs> paved the, the the hairpin. <laughs> he would be he would be incensed by that. Yeah, I'm sure. I, I, yeah. I think I'm missing some of the romanticism you guys have here because after hearing about cobbled hairpin, I sat down thinking, would that be would that be better for a lower, high rate car? Oh, it. Yeah, you come from the wrong generation, mate. Sorry. Yeah. Remember why, the word uh, historic is in the title. And, yeah, and again, you're a bit too mercenary for this. Yeah, that's okay, why we so, do the historic news, Nick. That's why yeah, we do the historic well, news. Sadly, my career is going to be historic now, so it's fine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> We're all there. Um, what does anybody think of uh, Brands Hatch, Monaco, and Montreal? Brilliant choices. Can I can I talk about Brands Hatch because I I I was there in '82 when Nicky Lauda won the British Grand Prix on his comeback year. I remember Nick uh, Nick mentioned um, oversteering wheel spin cars coming through Paddock Hill. I I watched Brand I was at every British Grand Prix at Brands Hatch from 1980 till the last one in 1986. And we had a European Grand Prix there in 83 and 85. And 85 was the Mansell's first Grand Prix win. And I I, I, um, I invaded the track with everybody at the end of the race and, and managed to blag my way into the pit lane. Cool again. And uh, as ever. Yeah. And Mansell was coming towards me. And I didn't know him. And he didn't know me. And... I was just overcome with emotion. And as he'd, he'd obviously been on the podium, he was coming off the podium and walking up the pit lane. Complete contrast to, to what today's protocols are. And I just walked up to him and I hugged him and I said, you've done it, mate, you've done it. And he was absolutely soaking with champagne, which was a bit ghastly. But the thing I wanted to talk about, because I digressed there, not like me, is it? Oh, um, no. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm on the outside of Paddock on the downhill sweep, but I, I've got a Straight ahead of me, I can see them coming out of Graham Hill and going towards Certes on bottom on Brabham Strait. I think is that the Brabham Strait, the, the one behind the pits? Yes. I'm not sure. Anyways, yes. peak here. 19, it must have been the 83 European Grand Prix, which was around about September, I think. And peak here in the uh, in the Turbo Brabham of that year, he came out of Graham Hill and he lit the rear tires up. And he left two, and he was fully broadside at about 30-degree angle. And he left two black lines from Graham Hill Bend all the way till he applied the brakes to Certes. And the car just it just squirmed under the power. And again, one of those visual impressions that you have, still there, can still see it right now when I'm telling you. Unbelievable place. Unbelievable place Good. to watch Formula One back in the day. Good, good point there. And um, Nick said about Monaco being the essence of Formula One. Uh, what do we think about that? I agree. I, yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I agree. It, the only problem is that, and, and I also agree, I agree with everything you said. You, without Ferrari, without Monaco, there isn't Formula One. Unfortunately, the rules makers have made Monaco almost a non-event because of the cars. The cars have gotten too big. They're too long. The Formula One car is as long as my Ram 1500 mm. pickup truck that I tow my camping car with. I mean, it's ridiculous the size of these cars. Mm. And that has made a place like Monaco almost obsolete. But you can't have Formula One without it. I, I have to I have to agree with, it, with I, Nick on that. I totally agree with everything Jim said about 
for uh, current Formula One cars. I think they're ridiculously long, yes. ridiculous. Do something about it, please, somebody. Um, but you can't take. It doesn't matter what you race around Monaco. It is the ultimate challenge, and those those guys who are in those Formula One cars that we see today. Just all right. It's it's a little bit different, isn't it? They've taken the barriers away from from the swimming pool section. However, we saw what happened to Charles Leclerc in qualifying, where he just mm-hmm. you know he's he's you've got he's committed as he's turning the wheel. He's nowhere near the corner. It's muscle memory, mm-hmm. and he's around the whole track. It's muscle memory, and he's turning in. And as he turned in, the car gripped up a little bit more than he perhaps judged it to. And that's why why he clipped the barrier, and it it happened in an instant, and that for me is the challenge of Monaco going up that hill in the Casino Square, and it's it's literally you've got you literally are those drivers are putting their their lives into the hands of the physics gods yeah. through that through that that avenue of Armco. It's, yeah, you're it's right. A, you're a right. Phenomenal good, sight. Good point, Paul. Um... Any thoughts about Nick's choice about Montreal? I almost went for Montreal myself, to be quite honest, because you're quite right. It is, I, I don't, it is a fantastic circuit. I immediately did think of that Jensen Button race where, you know, I think at one point he was running dead last. But yeah, you know, fantastic circuit. I love the fact that it's actually, it is next to the Olympic um, rowing lake, isn't it, that was built for the yeah. 1976 Olympics, I think it yeah, was. Yeah. Yes, so, indeed. Yeah, I actually feel a bit of a fraud sat here because, to be honest, each time somebody talked about a circuit, they convinced me. <laughs> you know, I'm, I, I am that sad romantic, you know, but I think yeah, strong cases. Yes, I agree with Monaco, but also the Nürburgring. Those are the circuits with the histories that go back past Formula One. You know, they were being used in the 20s for Monaco in the 30s for the Nürburgring, but fantastic circuits. But yeah, Buenos Aires, I've seen in car video. What an amazing track that was. Clermont Ferrand. Um, oddly enough, my main memory of that, I think, is from the uh, John Frankenheimer film, Grand Prix, where it's featured. Um, Kyle yeah. Army must admit, probably the one circuit I don't know a lot about, but you've got to love a circuit that will host a Grand Prix on Boxing Day and then on another year on, on New Year's Day. Nick, any uh, any thoughts about Watkins Glen? Yes, I, 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 I want to argue viciously with you about it, but no, I, it's one of the tracks I really want to go to. <laughs> well, I haven't gone to where we want to go to. So no, I think no, and I, I, I'm, you know, romantic in me. And interesting that uh, Paul mentioned this. A lot of the stuff prior to my experience is entirely based on um, shots from John Frankenheimer's film. Um, so no, no, it's uh, no, I, 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 you know, Watkins Glen is a fan. It, it was a great circuit, and unfortunately, it, it still is a great circuit in the, in the class it runs. But it's not, it's not in the right place. It appears to ever be considered for F one return, which is odd, really. I think it'd be a good. Oh, good I don't actually. think. I think you're right, Nick. I don't think it will ever see F one again. The the, no. the the world of F one has passed Watkins Glen by, and and its current ownership. Frankly, could give a shit about Formula One. So, and isn't it interesting that of all these circuits that we've chosen, almost all of them have had Formula One pass them by? Uh, that looking at the list, you know, it's it's Monaco and it's Montreal, um, Silverstone. You were very specific about it being 1985, so you know that's that's been. Um, been changed and emasculated as well. So, yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, it's, you, it's you, maybe a bad honor. You, you know what? You know what? It's more about Formula One than it does the racetracks and yes. not in a good way. 
You yes. know what, guys? I mentioned about Kyle Army and current Formula One cars, and can we imagine the speeds that they would uh, be getting up to at Kyle Army? Well, with Watkins Glen, you can actually experience that by going on iRacing. And you'll fight. You can actually drive the old configuration without the chicane on the back straight, up through the S's, etc. And and try a high downforce Formula One car around Watkins Glen. You're right. There's there's no way that Formula One, uh, in its current form, could go to Watkins Glen because the speeds would be absolutely ludicrous. There's no there's no slow corner. The first turn one is the slowest corner on that track. How can that be? I mean, that's not even a slow corner, is it? It's the, the speed would be phenomenal. In fact, they would get around that track in perhaps just on the minute. And when you think about how long that track is, that'd just be phenomenal. Yeah. Your Honor, I rest my case. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm talking, I'm talking people out of voting for Kyle Army here, aren't I? I'm, uh, I'm looking down the list and, and, You've all been kind enough to share your own personal memories of some of these circuits. Um, Paul, entry for me has a has a soft spot because it was my first ever Grand Prix, and uh, that I went there at the age of six to watch the uh, the nineteen fifty nine British Grand Prix there, the one that Jack Brabham won. Uh, that we had a a rivalry in our household in that I was always a Sterling Moss fan and my brother was always a Jack Brabham fan. So Brabham beating Moss in uh, in that race was a considerable humiliation for me. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but that was that was a, a good one. And I can remember you were saying about the, the grandstands and things and the two of us as as kids, we were walking through with my mother um, through the back of the grandstands, and they had converted, you know, those, those boards that they have at the horse racing where they slot in the the names of the runners and riders, and they converted one of those big metal towers that they put those on into a fun fair um, sort of slide, and you could just go up and, and do that. And walking through, I can remember it now, and that walking through, and it was a beautiful hot day, and this woman came up to my mother in a fur, in a mink hat and a mink coat and a flowery dress and very expensive shoes and said, perhaps the children would like to go and play on the slide. And I think both of us said, no, we'd like to go and watch the motor racing. But um, it turned out that this woman was Mirabelle Topham, who owned Aintree. <laughs> but it was – so that's that's my memories of Aintree. Rouen, yeah, I've done that that trip and thoroughly enjoyed that. Yes, you said about the N138 being part of the circuit, Paul, and then they, of course, um, put the new N138 in a cutting and therefore the old, the old circuit was never what it was going to be before. Nick? Brands Hatch, I'm with you. That was my my home circuit, and remember much of it. And uh, that much of my early days racing was there. Um, Monaco, yeah, it's an event, and I think that's that's very true. Um, Montreal, never been, but it looks fabulous on the on the telly. Um, nice town to go out in in the evening as well. Is it? Oh yeah. Is it? Oh it's yeah. A, there's a lot happening in Montreal. It's a lot of fun, and I always think it's one of the best examples of capitalism I've ever seen. 
Best part of covering the NHL was trips to Montreal. I can yeah. attest to that. I can't be going to many more than that, but I'll, I'll record. I'll tell you why I think he's the best part, example of <laughs> And then we'll put it on Facebook, ladies and gentlemen. Just supply and demand. That's what it is. <laughs> I, um, I went. I went to the Montreal Grand Prix in, in uh, 1990, and um, it was a little bit. The track was a little bit different um, from what it is now. But what I did find. Uh, having been an a, a avid visitor to Grand Prix in the UK, um, the the freedom of movement was not there was there was just complete and utter freedom of movement yeah, that's in a comparison North American to thing. yeah must must be Jim it was incredible to the point where I spent the qualifying session in the Lotus Pit overseeing Derek Warwick's Lotus. <laughs> And, uh, and, and 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 sort of uh, having Zach, a chat. Zach's having a ch- qualify. Having a chat to his engineer about uh, you know what what so, so what uh, what did you do there then when he came into the pits? Oh, we just uh, tweaked the roll bar. He wanted it a bit softer. Can you imagine doing that now? No, incredible. <laughs> and me, me and my mate <laughs> Phil just stood there in the in the in the garage doorway and watched what we 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 spent the qualifying session in the Lotus pit garage. And much like Argentina, the people watching is stunning. It's good, actually. Yes, that's, that, that bit of French. Uh, yeah, the, that, that's the interesting thing is, of course, that also they, everyone walks there, so you have this huge tide of humanity coming across the bridges onto the Ile de Notre Dame because mm. there's, there's no driving. They just all walk there and walk that's back, right. and it gives it a much. It gives it kind of a really relaxed atmosphere. You know, no one's we trying got, to drive we, the yeah. anywhere. We got the metro train. Um, we got the metro train. Now then, I was a serving police officer at the time, and I was in the metro station coming off the aisle at the end of, I don't know, the, on the Saturday, and this throng of people going into the metro station, and this this lad jumped up and smacked the light and damaged the light. He smacked the shit, the light shade off the off the light. And, I, and as a cop, I was amazed that everybody around him grabbed him and then shouted, hey, man. This guy here, this guy here, he's just smashed that light. And I'm thinking, that would never happen in Sunderland. He'd have been, he'd have been, he'd have been ushered away and hidden from us. And then they basically locked him up. And I thought, what a lovely place. Did he get a great, light sentence? Great nightlife. Oh, that was funny, Nick. That was funny. Uh, Nick does the funnies, note. remember, guys. <laughs> just talking about um, about Rouen Les Essars, I was also thinking of the uh, the story about David Purley there, um, and for those who who don't remember, David Purley was a for a short time a Formula One driver, but uh, but was a Formula Two driver for some time, uh, sponsored by his father's Leck Refrigeration Company, and that he was he was a daredevil. I mean, he was always a daredevil. He was a paratrooper, and uh, para, paratrooped. Um, into Aden um, as part of the the uprising there, um, and he always told the story of going down what I think is called the Three Sisters, isn't it? Those 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 left right bends down towards yes um, the uh, the hairpin, and he used to tell the tale that they were taught when they were in the parachute regiment that if you were scared when you were jumping out of an aeroplane, you screamed, and that that dissipated the fear because you had something else to think about. And he says he said that when he was driving Formula 2 there, 
it was so frightening going down through the Three Sisters that he would scream into his crash helmet just to make sure that he got to the Beaumont in the right way, which I think is brilliant. And he's uh, he was a, a not a close, but a neighbour of mine lived about five miles from where I live. And uh, he had a huge accident at Silverstone um, in his Formula One car when the throttles stuck open. Um, he was he made a sort of comeback, but it was never quite so good. So he took up stunt flying, you know, so take up something safe. And he took <laughs> up stunt flying. And uh, unfortunately, he uh, he flew his plane into the sea, just uh, just not very far from where my house is um, these days. But, uh, you know, he was a daredevil. But that story of screaming into his crash helmet, I think, is is absolutely fab. It's time for us to make our decision, my decision. Um, Your decision. Yeah, as to uh, where we are. Not an easy one at all this time. Um, Don't forget, please, that uh, all of this will be on our Historic Racing News Facebook page and on Twitter at Hist Racing News. So please go on and uh, we'd like to know what your choices would be because we saw a big upset with the... 76% 76% going on to uh, the Ferrari livery last time round. I want to know what your choice is going to be. So at Hist Racing News uh, or the Historic Racing News Facebook page, love to know that. But our winner on this show right now, prior to the public vote, is going to be... Monaco. No, hey! um, and it's Monaco because of one thing that you said, Nick, which is that without Monaco, there is no Formula One. So uh, well done, well done to everybody for that. Um, I hope that uh, everybody enjoyed that. Two Thanks. podium positions. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll uh, we'll announce the podiums, podium positions. When we've got the public voting, that's what we're going to do for that. So, uh, thanks to everyone on the show. Grumpy Jim Roller, (laughs) Joe Bradley, and uh, and Paul Jard. Special thank you to you, Nick Damon, for for coming on. Uh, Don't forget that our Insider Special will be with you on the third Wednesday of this month, which will be the 21st of July. And bearing in mind that they're running... Le Mans in August this year. Our insider special for 21st of July will be all about the 24 hours of Le Mans. My name is Paul Tarsi, and as always, thank you for joining us on the Historic Racing News radio show. And if you have been, thank you for listening. Bye bye.